Hello, folks. Before we begin tonight, I hope that after you spend some time with me, that you be sure to check out the other podcasts on the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Don't miss the latest episode of Drew Blood's Dark Tales, airing Fridays. And of course, don't forget Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSurley, Horror Hill with Eric Peabody, and of course, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. You can find them all at simplyscarypodcast.com, on YouTube, or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit chillingtalesfordarknights.com website and become a patron and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Join us for a while, won't you? <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 18. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing two tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Michael Boulder. Tonight, we'll hear stories of fates worse than death and waspish collectors. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first spine-tingling story. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There are some that, when faced with the inevitable of a horrific demise, accept it with grace, dignity, and peace. And then, there are those who would do anything to avoid that grim specter even if the cure isn't all it's cracked up to be. Join me, then, in the story of two fellows, one in good health and one who certainly isn't, as they discover a way beyond death that doesn't quite fix every problem. Without further ado, I present to you Test of Death. My best friend doesn't want to die, but his cancer is irreversible. Sky is black and booming, so I'm swallowing three of his tramadols. The nip of $80 cognac, back turned, hovering shame faced over the armoire where Jared keeps his dusty trophies and awards, and undrunk alcohol. I'm an awful nurse, I know. I don't know what else to do except stand around and take his possessions and watch him die. I'm his oldest friend. He tells me to do stuff. I do it for him. He tells me to give his suits to the St. Vincent de Paul. Okay, I do it. Give his Hot Wheel cars to my nephew. Throw out his trophies. Fair enough. It's not as if I deserve one. I haven't done anything to slow down his cancer. We're supposed to be high school teachers. Supposed to act brave in front of 200 kids every week. But Jared's behind me, watching TV slump on his side melting into the couch and I can't face him. Because tumors are devouring his insides, and he told me to help myself to anything in the house. His drugs, his booze, his washer-dryer, his vinyl collection, his Star Wars figurines. Filling a laundry basket with precious things, heavy with shame. I threw in a letter opener, a scented candle, Benzies, opioids... All his pills and die-cast toys and rare albums, sniffling while I work. I've moved the washer and dryer into the laundry, along with a suitcase of Jared's shirts. I'll come back with the trailer and take the vinyl, though I'm scared of what'll happen after. Removing his possessions feels like pulling a plug out of a bathtub. The dregs of his life will swirl away. If I stop packing up his life, will it even slow the cancer? I don't know. People are coming around for a dinner party tonight. Everyone assumes will be the last. It's pretty final. Jared snapping his fingers at me from where he splashed on the couch. The clicking thing is rude, though he gets a pass. Rudeness and gloomy sodden days are all we have. It's May 14th rains are coming every day, and we don't expect to last through the southern winter. 
I creep back to the couch and settle down in front of him with a glass of uh, morphine tablets crushed up in water and a long circus straw which he can sip without adjusting his body. Since he's sold his armchairs and his rug that he brought back from Egypt, I find a space for my butt on the couch's edge. It's gross having a dead man near. Okay, he's not dead yet. It's just that Jared sees himself as nearly dead. Jared embraced his bowel cancer in February, expected to die by the end of March, and started getting really black in April. What hurts him now isn't the cramps or the beetroot-colored poo or the burned skin. It's the uncertainty, the pointlessness of his days. He wants either a miracle extension of his life or a death date. Nothing in between. Jared extends an arm, his skin the color of mashed potato, straining, and the blood flushes out of his face as he points out his this goof in the DVD extras of Lord of the Rings. I try to have him laugh, agree with the prick, and then clear my throat. You've been indoors for like a week, man. You should go to Burger Fuel or something, like old times. Get you refreshed before the dinner party tonight. Jared rolls his eyes without looking at me. He's too weak to waste energy turning his head or sitting up. Chemotherapy eats up your insides and leaves you a bag of empty skin, your muscle melted, your skin burned and bumpy. Fine, man. We should at least stretch our muscles. Get the wine glasses and plates from the garage. Open some Christmas crackers for the guests. Come on, dude. People want to say goodbye. You have to, you know. Dress the place up a bit. Put up some bunting or whatever. The thought is father to the deed, he says, so go do it. Jared unpauses his Blu-ray and slips back into his sulk. We barely speak for the next hour. And remember, I haven't raided the bathroom. I go and take his fancy soaps and his razors, hating myself. He tosses his phone at me, and I read out the new message on his Facebook forum, reciting the support and love and prayer while Jared snorts and rolls his eyes. He's always taught computing, always loved machines more than people. He's about to leave this world with no missus, no kids. A bit of money from life insurance, a pension from school. Jared has 300,000 bucks, and all he wants to spend it on is time. Finally, the credits roll, and that's his entire DVD collection over. He's read all of his books, watched everything there is to watch, clocked Skyrim on Xbox, unlocked every Easter egg. There's nothing left. Rain sprinkles the deck. A gust of wind tips a bucket over. His wind chimes tingle get through this godforsaken dinner party tonight, then we'll move on with our lives, Jared sighs. Well, you'll get on with your life. I'll get on with my death. Bro. Michael. Sky booms. The roof rattles. We can slow it down, granted, but we can't stop this thing. It's 6.29, just before people file into Jared's house, for what could be our last dinner party ever. 
Jared and me hover in the coat room while I dust off the backpack full of drugs me and Jared used to take to festivals. There's Molly in here, MDMA, enough for a little lick each. The corner of his mouth twitches, almost smiling for the first time in a month. Then he sees Sir Miller and Karen are here, and he turns to his audience and hobbles over using his cane. Get your photos in, he says, bent, cynical. Next time this month, I'll be worm supper. Hopefully. Sir Miller bursts into tears. Kieran rubs her back and looks at me. I carry on putting out plates and silverware, breadsticks and pate, camembert and olives. Jared was an autistic, smiling asshole, even when he was healthy. He's not going to suddenly become sensitive in his last days. Jared wheels his chair over to the door when the Milners enter, saying, Come in. Don't be shy. You know what to do. All the folks here are teachers, mostly. Tall and unimpressed in thick coats and pointless scarves. Short and nerdy and Europolitan in shoes they picked up from Florence or Buenos Aires. Jared plays dictator for the evening, sitting at the head of the table in an office wheelie chair with armrests. He dismisses or hisses or snorts at just about everything anyone says. I watch him while I serve soup and arrange cubes of cheese and pour cocktails. These people have their degrees, Jared's thinking. But all they know is life. They know nothing of the undiscovered country Jared is about to go to. I serve roast lamb with mint and rosemary on it, torn off from the untended garden, which has been creeping up to the house. After it's been eaten and praised, I slice up a thick, chewy moon cake. Lisa's mother imported from Taiwan, and Abdi shows off his Chinese. Initially, when I check the time at seven, Jared's conversation is confrontational, insulting. The guests climbing up, rubbing their wrists, looking at the tines on their forks. Next time I check my watch, it's almost ten, and the windows are black, and somebody just called the deputy principal a name, and everyone's drunk, leaning back in their chairs, playing with their wine glasses. Someone finds a wrapped box of cards against humanity. By 11.30, Jared is slurping whiskey out of the gold-painted plastic cup. His students awarded him that day he took them bowling, Usually, Jared has three naps a day. Only the molly is keeping him awake. I pour wine into Jared's gold goblet with his face slumping and he collapses on his fist as he rests his flabby melting skull on his knuckles. He's sitting at the head of the table, but there are three conversations going on at once. And now it's midnight and the table is a dump of torn garlic bread and Glass and salt shakers and bones and corn cobs and canoa on dirty plates. We've all had a snort of molly and sucked tequila shots with lemon and salt. The Milners and Ahmed live together, hugging and kissing Jared and taking a farewell selfie with him, kissing Jared's bald dome before bursting into tears while Jared rolls his eyes. Next, it's 1 a.m., and even the storm's gone to bed. There's only one conversation going on. 
Rico was trying to tell us how he's been inspired by this Tibetan monk guy on YouTube who reckons death is nothing to fear. It's like a second life. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're giving me advice on death, Rico. Dude, nah, no offense. I just mean like, tuck damn jar. You've never heard of it? Jared looks at me, my eyebrows narrow. I suppose I could tell you a story, this thing I read. Rico's going. He looks over his shoulder warily. His silent sidekick, Stacy, or was it Casey, squeezes his arm. I don't know if I should. It'll freak you out, Jar. Jared thumps the table. Everybody jumps. Do I look like a man with time to waste? Rico gets his phone out, clears his throat. I warned you, okay? This story, it isn't like you shouldn't follow it. Don't do what these guys are doing. You're positive you want this story? Came from nature, like the journal Nature. Listen, here we go. Tuck down, the Tibetan solution to death, science or supposition. Tuck down appears to be an occurrence in which a Buddhist monk passes away, but there is seemingly no physical decomposition for as much as 10 to 14 days. Dr. Richard Davidson of Wisconsin Technical College whose doctoral thesis looked at the meditation's effect on bodily systems, studied the phenomenon at the Deer Park Monastery west of Ann Arbor in December 2019. The monk that Davidson observed, Ong Juri, was 84 years old, suffering from advanced heart disease. Davidson documented the subject tidying his bedroom in the barracks, assigning a disused room, clearing the room's boxes and cobwebs, preparing only a cushion, sitting down and entering a silent, eyes-open, transcendental meditation, which lasted two hours initially, then stretched out to three, five, and then twenty-four hours. Silent meditation was all that was required. No chanting, no recital of prayer. 
The subject simply focuses on walking through the tunnel of death and emerging instead of surrendering, I was told. During this time, Andurji's pulse slowed to a marginal rate before dropping to zero, though the time of death was impossible to determine. Davidson told Nature he wanted to create a model predicting the onset of an intertidal zone for subjects whose heart rate slows so much during meditation that it eventually ceases while the brain continues to emit gamma waves. To find out how long life could last after death, Davidson was granted permission to attach electrodes to Andurji's temporal and occipital lobes, along with a heart rate monitor to chart the descent into death and potentially beyond. You walk into the room. What these guys are doing, it's indistinguishable from deep meditation, Davidson said. Like a deep sleep or a coma, zero difference. This guy, for Andurji, his chest wasn't even rising and falling. I was there for research interviews. The other monks, they didn't blink twice about Andurji slipping away. They didn't consider Andurji to have died, actually. They didn't have a plan to ring a funeral director or anything. While we were waiting to see if, you know, if Andurji was going to be, if there were going to be any further developments, they took me to this courtyard, this separate area, in the south wing. This garden full of fuchsias and lilies and vines, kind of neglected. There they were in there, the guys that had done it before Andurji. And at first I thought they were like statues. Because they were blue statues, the people in the bushes, like Krishna, in Hindu paintings, because they just put them there, left the monks outside in the bushes to sit forever, exactly like statues, four of them I counted, between the bamboo, sitting cross-legged lotus style, so blue that they were black in the cracks and crevices, like around their armpits where their heads had sunk into their collars. One guy, I don't know if I should say, it's like rats were all over him, yanking at his lips like fish-nibbling bait. And he turned just a smidgen, turned and tilted his head, nodding, like saying hello. Real calm, real beatific. That's when I got the hell out of there. Rico finishes. We all look up. I yell, something is crushing arm. It's Jared looking more energetic than he has in weeks, black rings around his eyes. You have to get me this tuck damn thing. Rico shifted over to the door. He's reaching into the arms of his coat. Stacy, Casey, is tightening her scarf and looking anxious. Black world is closing in. It's almost two now. Bottom of the night. Rico hovers, half turns around. One last look at Jared. Why would you want to go through Tuckdam? It's not something you can, like, do weekend retreat on. Forget the Davidson professor guy, anyway. Went crazy, I heard. Made all these weird-ass recordings, then voom, up and vanished. Jared flings a glass at Rico. Splinters on the wall. Casey, Stacy, ducks, screams, opens the door, and escapes. Get me it! 
turns and puts his force on the eyes narrowing. Michael, we have to try. Waking up. That's the name of the app I downloaded. This American Vietnamese doctor guy, this philosopher, Thick Nat Han. He's the narrator, except he's so robotically calm and quiet and so uninterested in making his English sound normal that you barely recognize it's a guy narrating until you're minutes into it. Me and Jared were sitting on our elbows on the kitchen table, hunched over it. Episode 346 is a conversation with that Richard Davidson guy, the doctor, the expert on the topic of second life. This is what we've been waiting for, except when Thick Nat Han talks and talks about spiritual planes, and we realize Davidson has hardly said anything. Jared goes to the window. It's agonizing for him to stand up. And he hobbles, shudders. Davidson, Jared tells the storm outside. He's the one we want. He has the answer. I already Googled, plus I emailed the university. They sacked him, I think, reading between the lines. If he's published something recent, God knows where. Dude's a ghost, man. Even so, Jared says. You need to find him. It's on a Friday after school, drive home to Jared's, when the sky is purple, lit by white veins of lightning, and everybody's racing toward the weekend plans, that I decided to try Reddit. Google hasn't helped, nor is LinkedIn, or Facebook, or the white pages, but I have a feeling. I pull over under a service station awning and type Dr. Richard Davidson's name, into the Reddit app on my phone. Just a single reference appears in the results. A single page, a single line, on a subreddit called r slash life after death. A whole discussion board. Someone's getting tons of upvotes. They've pointed to a Scientific American article. It says in the natural world, the less something moves, the longer it tends to live. Bacteria thrive on coral for a thousand years in oxygen-low waters. Seeds and spores, practically immortal, can have lifespans of thousands of years before rising after a drink of water. Redditor Friedman69 has an opinion. You guys read that thing in Nat Geo? CPR equals miracle, yo. Ask Gardell Toms, seven years old. Kid fell in a frozen pond in Amish country. Didn't breathe for 200 minutes. Pulse returned after they squirted warm fluid up. You have to reintroduce oxygen slowly. I did pre-med at uni. Breathing. That's where we've been going wrong. All this time. Oxygen is a paradox. Take oxygen down to like 0.1%. You keep nematodes alive for a thousand years. Then there's Numatool 16. You guys heard the blackness, then the white? Audiobook. Banned in 80 countries. You have to get it. Tells you how you can do that Tibetan tuck dam thing. Extend life after death. Last copy of the recording equals Pirate Bay, but go through 
Tor B slash C. They're watching. It's there. All the instructions. Every other platform dropped the podcast after, you know what, other thing took over. Things got real. I surge out into traffic, push my car through screens of stony rain, and race up the motorway. I burst into Jared's home and shake him awake. Char, man, I think I found it. The garage. That's the place forward for us. A concrete bunker with a steel door where skeptics and critics can't get in. A place for this whole project to begin. Operation Tuckdown. I push boxes of framed photographs and certificates against the walls. I shove skis and a paddle and hiking boots and 200 sci-fi novels in a wheelbarrow into the corner. I brush the floor clean. We each position a cushion in the middle of the floor, tighten our wool coats and scarves. I sit easily. Jared packs his painful body down like he's easing into a hot bath, hissing teeth bared. Ever meditated before, Jared? Jared shakes his head. Pseudoscience, it always seemed to me. Quackery. Hot yoga mumbo-jumbo. Nevertheless, here we are. We drum our fingers on our knees. Jared's wearing a white t-shirt. His armpits have leaked dark juice into it. Sweat mixed with something awful and cancerous. It's raining again today. We can smell it. Sneaking through tiny cracks, relentless drumming on the roof. I lean forward, position my portable Bluetooth speaker between us. I hold my cell phone in front of me, get ready to push play on a recording that will change Jared's life. Change his death, rather. For the first time in years, Jared looks at me with beseeching eyes. Michael, do you think... Do you think it'll, you know... Happen? Uh, immediately? I don't know, but, like, you should probably text your dad, eh? Say goodbye. There's a small window looking out into the chrysanthemum hedge. Jared stares at it, then back at the speaker. Jared's old man was a lot like him. A robot with as much heart as a calculator. Just get it over with. Press play. Our existence is not a toggle. On for alive, off for dead, begins a slow, plodding, raspy voice, a tired, patient voice. Think of our existence as a dimmer switch with which we move through shades, white to black. After a pause, we descend. They didn't want me to record this. They wanted me gone, silenced. But you cannot terminate a dead man. This lesson, this sermon, this is my gift to you. You with multiple sclerosis or 100 pills of paracetamol you're itching to swallow. You with sciliosis and agony in every breath. This is for the crippled, the tired, for everyone who's had enough of life. There's a moment's hesitation and the sickly crunching sound of a snail being stepped upon. If you've ever been diagnosed with squamous cell carcinoma, you'll know the first questions are all variations on why. 
and then use a voice which bubbles and pops. A sickly voice, slow and crusted and scabby. A voice trickling with fluid. Why are the gods displeased with me? When did I go wrong? Can't I go back and atone? The doctor, she's young, embarrassed, inexperienced. Turns away on her swivel chair. Reads the script on her screen. If you've ever been diagnosed with a cancer of the lungs, which feels like you have damp sawdust at the bottom of your throat, you'll waste money on therapists and self-help books and inspirational calendars. You'll watch your colleagues hug the wall to avoid brushing against you in the corridors of the faculty office where you once had value. You'll get used to the disappointment of your manager as you take off mornings and afternoons so slim doctors with good skin can pass magnets and radio waves over your body while you lie on a table and imagine what it's like to be a corpse. You'll burst into Deer Park Monastery, distraught and drunk with vodka, steaming out of your pores at ten o'clock on a Wednesday night and collapse at the feet of the only people who understand. Tell them that you want to do this, this tuck damn thing, this letting go. Beg them to let you die here. They'll rub oil into your head, give you a last bath with menthol and incense, and the next morning, after a final meal of dal and rice, they'll guide you to a private room. There's a cushion, and there's you, and there's infinity. A pause now. No breathing. Low, slipping, sickly breaths, like the dregs of a milkshake sucked through a straw. In this seminal 1994 text, Erasing Death, Critical care physician Sam Parnia reminds us death is a process, not a moment. It's a whole body stroke. The heart stops beating, but the organs don't die immediately. Organs can be harvested hours after the heart stops. They continue for quite some time indeed. So consider this, you, out there, lonesome, afraid. When a liver is rushed across the country to put in a body of a needier patient. Is this not death giving life? I open one eye. I'm surprised to see Jared staring directly at me, though he's not looking at me. His chest is barely rising. Jared is entranced. You're listening intently, I know. You're getting ready for the second phase. You're looking down a black water slot child, this tunnel into which I beckon you. It has an end, you know. You needn't be afraid. At the end is light, refreshing light, a gentle gray light which twists and swirls like wading through fog. Your eyes will be dry as onion skin. You'll blink in the new realm, and you'll notice an eyelash twitch and wriggle. You'll pick twisting grains of rice from rims of your eyes. These things, drinking your juices, they are the children of flies. They are life renewed. You'll creak and groan and slosh. You push yourself to a standing position and wonder what day it is. How long has passed? Two weeks, perhaps, or maybe three, since you passed over. 
Feels like an eternity, does it not? He'll stagger to the door, the hallway, the foyer. Brothers in the monastery, they'll nod as you pass, because they understand. He'll put two hands hard against the very front doors, beside reception and the gift shop, where postcards and gum and bonsai trees are sold. You'll notice something sprouting on your knuckles. Green mold that grows on bread. Twin boys on tricycles will see you and drop their ice cream and shriek. The blue man, Mommy, is... is he's blue! You'll push the glass doors open and here's the world. You'll put a hand in the center of your ribcage. Your heart should be pounding. During lunch breaks in the steamy staff room, I try to do my research. I try to listen as Davidson bores through a tunnel of answers toward the ultimate question. I keep headphones pressed against my skull while the teachers chatter and gossip and spray chewed-up sandwich, elbowing me to get my input on a new timetable. They want me to cover a sport for athletics day. They want to know what I think of that little creep that got transferred from Marist. I make my excuses, abandon my box of papers, I leave a stack of unread memos in my pigeonhole. This daytime banter, this chatter, this babble and fuss, it's a waste of time. I just want to be beside my friend as he passes. It's been eight days of meditation so far. Eight days out of a final ten. I don't think he'll last until the weekend. Jared's eaten nothing. I pushed a sip of water into his lips and not much else. Any afternoon now, Jared's going to push up from the garage floor and declare this whole silly experiment a waste of time. Then he'll die and I'll shove his clothes into a giant steel bin beside a Korean barbecue joint. Place a notice in the paper meet the men suits. He appears dead when I walk in, sitting upright. A concrete man, heavy, center of an empty cement garage, wind whistling at the door. Jared's eyes are becoming dry and matte, and I have to brush my palm against his lashes to make him blink. In today's sermon, Davidson's plodding monologue tells of how he had to remain unresponsive through examinations by the monks at the monastery, while they murmured and poked and looked him hard. He tested for three cardinal benchmarks. The tests of Tuckdam. The tests of death. Davidson describes the tests. I asked Jared if he has a pen and paper somewhere around here. Jared says nothing. Jared's somewhere else. In the gray, bruised hour before my lonely microwave pasta at home, I take my friend outside and commence the tests of death. The wind nips, yes. My skin and Jared's are studded with goose pimples, okay? But the cold will preserve him. I decided on the drive over, stroking the shelves at the pharmacy, wondering if I ought to turn back. Through the house, I drag my friend from garage to hallway, to the thud, thump, thud of the steps from the sunken lounge pit up to his porch. His ankles scrape the carpet. His head smacks a corner. On the wet, slippery, wooden slats of the deck, 
I used scissors to hack off Jared's t-shirt, stiff and brown, and I pull his right arm until it snaps into place. His eyelids riffle in the breeze. A cockroach runs out of his armpit, but apart from that, Jared doesn't flinch. I find a vein, pull the pharmacy syringe from my pocket, unwrap the thing, screw the needle onto the pump, shake up a bottle of betadine and inject 80 millimeters of iodine, then another 10. 90 mils. Huge dose. Jared told me to in the instructions he gave me on a Google spreadsheet before this whole unreal thing became real. Iodine slows oxygen metabolism, he insisted, clutching my collar. My heart needs to sip its oxygen, Michael. Tiny gasps. Need to get him cold now. Rip the cotton off his saggy tits. Expose him to the wet wind. Slow down the movement of free radicals and hemoglobin in his cells. I bend him backwards, roll him onto his side, fetal. Take a curtain from the linen closet, spread it over his Pompeii stiff body, hunched and awkward. Char! Jared, man! You can't hear me, right? The wind answers, speaking through the plastic roof cutters, which drizzle a screen of freezing rain. The lawn is soaked, bleeding mud, brown puddles. The first test of death is determining whether Jared will drink. I cup a handful of rain, pour it into his hard, rubbery purple lips. The water spills out onto his stubbled chin. Jared's tongue doesn't move. Next, I wrench Jared's left hand away from his lap. I push back the watch they gave him for twenty years' service at school. I take from my pocket a thin plastic case the size of a business card, a selection of needles I've stolen from the sewing department at school. I extracted the longest needle, hold it up to the wan light. I'm utter sorry for what I'm about to do. I pry the fingernail back off the skin of the index finger of his left hand. Long nail needs clipping. I jam the needle into the soft, sensitive nail bed, hissing and whimpering on Jared's behalf. Thunder booms like falling logs. Jared doesn't flinch. Next, I cup another handful of water. I attempt to pour it in his ear. Most of it sits like a pool. A single bubble gurgles to the surface. And still, Jared doesn't move. He's a hunk of defrosting meat. I set the podcast on the deck to continue playing. I know he's dead, and my eyes are wet, but it feels right. Davidson's voice. It's Jared's guide. As I walk away, I hear either the wind murmuring under the overhang, or I hear my friend call out. I don't turn back to check. I run. I open my door in a hurry, stagger toward the shower. I warm my skin till the hot water runs out, and my teeth have stopped chattering. In bed, I swallow three sopaclone sleeping pills with a slug of schnapps. It's a gift bottle with a note thanking Jared for taking the kids to that hackathon in 2014. I turn the lights on and study the backs of my eyelids. I wonder what's beyond the blackness.
Char, you here, bro? It's been a week and I've been flopping between druggy daytime sleeps and all night paranoid Google searches. There are laws requiring you to report a person's death, Reddit tells me. I'm sure I've broken those laws. I've spotted police cars on my drive over here. More cops than normal. They'll be coming for me. Broken light gray zone. Calling. Forest tunnel. Jared? It's me, man. You here? I finally locate the voice on the deck. Podcast is still playing through the speaker. I've left plugged into Jared's phone. 24 missed calls. Richard Davidson's voice is melted and crusty. Exhausted and melted like a Walkman with dying batteries. But no Jared. Dude, are you here? I'm sorry about all. I'll call an ambulance or something. Kitchen. Voice low and raspy and moist. Like a bubble of words burping out of a wash basement. Dude! Beside the dishwasher, a single leg sticks out. Suit pants rumpled as a used condom. A foot. Toes that twitch. I fall to the liner. Crawl to him. He's fallen like a frail old granddad needing a hip replacement. Like a pile of dropped laundry. Most of the suit is on Jared's body. His clean white shirt over his distended belly. His arms are inside a black suit jacket. The pants he must have tried to step into while standing. He lost his balance and collapsed, unable to bend his stiff body. There's white foam crusted on his lips. His dried-up eyes point in wildly different directions. I'm late, he says. I have to get to... work. The head speaking to me is lavender color where pink bleeds into purple and cools into blue. Where the skin bunches around his neck, the folds are deep indigo. Blue, too, are the veins snaking across his flesh. Thousands of streams and rivers and tributaries choked with unmoving, cold, dead blood cells. Dude, I don't think you should... School, they're not, like, expecting you to work. Know what I'm saying? They've pretty much written you off and said goodbye. So this whole suit thing is... They think I'm dead. That mushy throat again. Hard, lumpy, sticky words. And eyes that roll in their sockets but can't focus. They're cracked eyes, hard and varnished over. Chipped like cue balls dropped on concrete floors. Jared's trying to look at me, but something dances on the edge of his vision as if he can see midges flitting around me. I pull him to his feet, guide him to the couch. I put on those Game of Thrones episodes that he loves, season four, episodes two to five specifically, which he's always told me are the height of the show. I position him upright on the couch. As I'm sweeping cobwebs off the ceiling with a broom, I hear his body slide and thud onto the carpet. Drop my broom and rush to help. He's on his side after that, back to the fetal position. No catching up, no reports from beyond. He's a baby again, a pet rock. 
but he's still my friend. I can get used to this. We both can. I will walk with him. A knock at the door wakes me. I've slept in my work shirt, tie on Jared's cold carpet. It's a real estate woman, carrot-haired, tight-belt, gorgeous, and she's trying to peek around the door. She slides a brochure at me. Lost a loved one, the brochure says. It's time to sell. I throw the door at her, put my back against it, listen as her high heels clack on the path. She's phoning somebody, some boss or authority or stakeholder. The guy said he was dead, though, right? A noise comes from Jared. The rest of my friend check he's okay. It's his stomach. Something is shifting in there. Around six, I insisted on getting pizzas delivered. I forbid the Uber Eats guy from coming to the front door and wait outside on the street for him. When I stagger in the door the next day, exhausted from the all-staff meeting, the pizza appears alive, bubbling and roiling and squirming with black jelly beans. Blowflies. They rise from the pizza to a dizzying spin and settle on his nose, guzzling the stream of brain fluid that flows through his nostrils and pools above his lips. The pizza is not the meal. The meal is my friend. Try to bathe him on the fourth day. To get him to move, I have to stand under him. Juices and scabs stain my tie and shirt. I tip Jared into the tub, pull his underwear off. Maggots underneath. I begin with a blast of warm water until Jared's purple hand reaches out and squeezes mine. No! He gasps. Melting, rotting, weary voice. Cold! Jared, the new Jared, the changed Jared, the passed over Jared. I cannot comprehend time. I put on another of his favorite films, Dune, a miniseries. And after the four hours have passed and the credits have run till the end, he remains staring at a blank screen. The flies return, big, shiny, jelly bean sized blue bottles, drinking his eyes while he gobs. Later, when I haul him off the couch and we stagger to the bedroom, I observe a pool of maggots in his wake. Little wriggling yellow grains of rice that fall around his ankles. I clean his socks in the sink, though the smell is impossible to conquer. Salty stench of rotting shoes pulled from a muddy river. Mornings, I sit him on the backyard bench to watch birds. I give him a log of luncheon meat. He chews, pulls the soft pink meat into his decaying throat. I hear the meat roil and churn in his belly, which has become a swollen hump, pushing out against the depressing wool jersey I forced on him. On a Thursday, I race to his place of work and walk in and have to stride to the kitchen to turn a tap off. An inch of water is pooled in the kitchen, the larder and the laundry. He's been leaving lights on, too, as he lurches up and down his house, Haunting rooms, leaning against walls for hours, leaving sticky smears on the wallpaper, where juices leak through his back, soaking the pathetic suit jacket he wears for a job he'll never attend. Then the power company shuts the power off. No more lights or warm water. No more DVD marathons. 
After ten days, we walked to the park, me with a hand around his squishy shoulders, urging him like an old man. Spring is coming down. The wind nibbles with gums instead of teeth. On a bench, looking through the roundabout, bark chips and rope cage, we gaze toward the brook. A girl comes up the grass slope, clutching a fistful of broken-off bulrushes, babbling, hot dogs, hot dogs, get your hot dogs. Her eyes lock with Jared's. She trembles, begins rocking side to side. The girl's pants are yellow at first. She takes in the horror on the bench beside me. Her pants turn black. The pier the week after. Slapping winds, blades of sun. Wet droplets in the air. Seagulls circling. Bad here. Jared's mumbling. See them waiting. End of pier. Mouths. Tails. Jared more inflexible, harder to lug and heft. His legs stiff as glass. What's waiting? Them. Swarm. People. Black. Devils. They want me. To join. Jared's foot comes down in the crack. He twists. I hear his tibia snap. He bends and wobbles. Falls over on his back, his foot upside down, twisted as a fettuccine noodle. Seagulls immediately bomb us, nipping, tearing, squawking. They land and begin gobbling mouthfuls of meat from Jared's snapped-off foot. White bone oozing purple blood in a leg that's blue. As we run toward a car, a Rottweiler wrestles out of the grip of a woman on rollerblades, bounds after Jared. Managed to get the car door open just as the dog bumps the side, arfing. The drive is home. There's a long, sleek brick of a car in the driveway. A black hearse. Behind it, an ambulance and a skinny police officer. All uniform, neat shaven head, blue hat, notepad. I keep the car running, idle past. Sure, I can see in the rear view the funeral director stepping out onto the street with a paramedic beside him, pointing as I disappear. I'm in trouble. Don't want to protect my friend. X basic backpackers on Queen Street. A place we last came to when we were 19 and ridiculous. We take a dorm room. Downstairs, breaking glass and shouting, French girls chanting, relentless nightclub, unst, unst, unst. It's over, Jar, I say, sniffing the disgusting, hostile pillow. We gotta face it, dude. If there was a way out, a shaft of light or something, you'd have said so, right? I'm pacing wall to wall, peeling off a green leaf patterned wallpaper, dark and hopeless and depressing. I pace because I think I can walk out of all of this. Walk till they forget at school that I abandoned the job. Walk to the police and health services and coroner. Forget that a man died at 2289 Marangi Drive and his body disappeared. Parts of a foot later discovered at Murray's Bay Wharf. I pace and peel wallpaper. Jared lies a meter away on a tomb-sized bed. Two arms and one and a half legs, as if practicing for his coffin. 
stomach is slopping and rippling like he's got hunger cramps. So I sneak him down the fire stairs and drive us to burger fuel. Our old favorite. Our routine. Pull up in a disabled parking space right outside, where the tarmac meets concrete, curb, and that meets linoleum. Reeks in the car. I open a window. Hungry. Jared gasps. Drunk with death. Hair trickling down his skull, head lolling and wobbling. Hung, hung, you've, you have to. From his mouth blurgs a river of yellow fluid, sickly thick custard. As he's beginning to say sorry, fumbling to open the car door, a second torrid of maggots pours onto my lap. He's vomiting so hard he's pushed back. He squeezes the door open. Jared, puffy and blue, falls out onto the tarmac and begins to crawl toward burger fuel, away from burger fuel, anywhere. But he cannot walk with just one foot. He can't even get on his feet. Instead, tearing his knees open, he crawls. The family tips over their table and runs as the blue, lumpy creature in the torn black suit reaches out, begging for a helping hand to pull him up panic. Spilled chips, overturned burgers, screams and roars, and me cursing Jared as I wrap my arms around him and haul 80 kilograms of meat toward the tarpaulin-lined trunk of the car that's just big enough to fit a man, except his head is sticking out. Hanging over the license plate and the tow bar. Can't cram the corpse any further into the trunk. Burger fuel manager has a cell phone against his ear, and he's slipping on squashed chips, asking police to come immediately. And I have to get the trunk closed, so I slam it right on his neck and blurt, Sorry, Jar. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I crouch and catch the blue, squishy coconut as the last flap of neck skin detaches, and it falls to the tarmac. Catch my friend. Catch his head. South of Auckland is Pukekahe. South of Pukekahe, the expressway lets us drive at 120 k's an hour. South of that, back roads through limestone downs, green wilderness, all valleys and castles of rock, hedges and fields of waving corn. There are surprises over each hill and corner, and eventually warm signs counting the kilometers then Te Awumutu in Smith Street, where I ease back the throttle, as the orange empty light comes on. I phoned him last night, while Jared slept. Had a talk on Skype, actually. Richard Davidson wouldn't say which country he was in, but I've got a theory. I think it's Bataan. I think he's high up in the mountains, where the air is cool. In the snow, maybe. Refrigeration. Davidson, who took a hundred emails and seven phone calls and a ton of private Reddit messages to track down, contains himself in a hoodie and says nothing. His face is darkened. Not even sure if there is a human in there. I can tell he's in a tent talking to me. He listens as I tell my story. We've been winning, I argue. We did okay. We got through. But there's not much left of my friend, and I don't know where we're going. The man in the tightly drawn hoodie says little. It is only when the sleeping back 
He's rested his laptop on shifts, catches fresh light that I see a snapshot. That skull from the Misfits logo. Skull with eyeballs and it's shrunken like marbles. That's what's inside his hoodie. A skull without eyebrows or sideburns or nostrils or lips. All bone and eyeballs. Finally, a noise comes out of him. Wish I had a friend. The skull says, friend like you. A bone falls out from under his jaw. He's reaching for it and pressing it back into his throat when he terminates the call. The woman behind the reception counter looks like she's been tumbled under a truck, violently bleached hair with black roots, rubbing a keycard against her hip, standing up, suspicious. She ain't got much luggage. We're at the two-star Barangia View Motel, hardly an establishment to fight over. I tell her I just need a room, farthest from the road. No windows, uh, I don't care. We just need shelter. And she has to let me know if any cops come past. You can wash that, you know, your towel, she says, leading us across the gravel. We got a laundry. What you got in there? Anyway, bowling ball? Me, I love to bowl. Uh, totally, I say, shifting the big round weight from the crook of my right arm to my left. Bowling, right. The windowless motel cube we hole up in feels safe. It's our bunker, our fortress. There's unlimited Sky TV with all the American channels. A block of showers and sinks. Fish and chips over the road, not that Jared will eat anything. After dinner, we kick back on the bed and watch South Park and I guffaw until I cry. Jared's eyelids are half down. He looks sleepy. This laundry the hag at reception mentioned... I'll be needing it. I'm almost ready to think of tomorrow. Depends on if tomorrow comes or not. Because if I do wake tomorrow, I need to do intense, heavy, hot washing. The bowling ball bag is so saturated with juices it drips. I'll need to get the blood stains out of the sheets before the motel asks questions. He's leaking, Jared is. Soaking through the sheets... His cut-off neck oozes endless fluid, much of it purplish, blackish blood. Other fluid is clear stuff with pink veins in it, like crab guts that cascades out of his nostrils, with his sticky mustache pulling on lips as he struggles to lick. It's the frontal cortex of his brain putrefying. We watch silly shows till midnight, and I even pop out for a bottle of wine and come back and ransack the cupboards find a plastic sippy cup. I pour wine into my friend's lips and it gushes through his jaw, fingers of wine and blood trickling across the bedspread. But it's okay. I believe Jared appreciates the gesture. His eyes have shriveled to nearly nothing now, like light switched off, just a little afterglow. Me, I turn the motel lights out and crawl under the wet covers, wriggling till I find a dry spot. I roll on my side and stroke my fin's scalp. I have to halt the stroking every 30 seconds. Wipe off chunks of skin and sticky hair. In the blue hour before dawn, we listen to trucks rumble past. Hear a fight? Broken glass somewhere. Cat's claws on a steel drum. Good night, Jar. 
Love you, bro. In the blackness, I see two teeth appear, pale blue, as his lips pull back and his cheeks fold. A smile. I hope you enjoyed Test of Death by Michael Boulder, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash boulder. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash B-O-T-U-R. He has numerous books available, but the stories you're hearing tonight from this New Zealand author come from his book, The Devil Took Her, available now. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard him on this show and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on this program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyre channel, where you'll find my releases on the series Horror Storytime dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jive. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep. If you can. <laughs>
narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.